Hello there, you Awakening Wonders. Thank you so much for joining me today for Stay Free with Russell Brand. We've got some fantastic things to talk to you about. One, the state versus rumble, and curiously, the power of big tech in alliance with globalist governments and how this is becoming the dynamic that's going to control information, data, surveillance, your ability to observe, imbibe, consume, potentially dissenting voices or dissident views for the next few years, how there's a raft of laws being proposed, being ushered through right now in my country, in your country and across the world. They're going to make free speech and even opposition and free thought basically impossible. It's an incredible story. You're going to love it. It's a good companion piece to our conversation with Dr. Robert Epstein, where he talked about how he's observed and demonstrated the degree of corruption that is demonstrable and the impact that it's having on everything from elections to actually perception itself. Also, Lee Fang's coming on the show. Now, in order for us to house these voices, we need your support. If it's possible for you to support us by following us on Rumble, please do that. And if you can become an Awakened Wonder and support us directly, that would be incredibly appreciated now more than ever. Fang's going to be talking about stuff like a Zimpic and revelations around that obesity drug that's going to stagger you. Profits from Lockheed Martin and how they benefit from the ongoing Ukraine-Russia conflict. And indeed, free speech itself. Remember, join us on Rumble if you can and become a member of our community by clicking the red button on your screen now. Do you know what I think we need at the moment? More than anything, a portrait of Hillary Clinton. That is what the world requires. If I could just look at Hillary Clinton rendered in oils, not oil that was gleaned after the Gulf War conflict, paint oils, I think that would really soothe me at a time like this. Oh, someone's doing one. Great. Let me start by thanking uh, Secretary Blinken. Um, I am incredibly grateful to you uh, for your leadership, the tremendous job you're doing. If we had been in this room in its former, much gloomier kind of look. A portrait of Hillary Clinton is guaranteed to lift the ambience of any room, unless it's a room sort of somewhere in Syria or anywhere, frankly, where she's backed illegal wars. Anthony Blinken said of this, the walk to the secretary's office on the seventh floor is a little bit awe-inspiring down the wood-panelled mahogany row, surrounded by portraits of our predecessors, all of them white men, Blinken said before the unveiling. A couple of years ago, and talked about... Uh, an invasion of Ukraine that, uh, instead of driving a stake between us and our allies, brought us closer together in order to support uh, the right of the Ukrainian people uh, to defend their liberty and freedom and democracy, people might have doubted that. It's funny that Hillary Clinton refers to the dark times as the before war times. And when she talks about allies and friendships, it's not the Care Bears. It's a bunch of people coming together to get involved in a profitable war. What are we going to do now? A picnic? Yeah, a picnic's fine. We'll do that after the war, though. OK, we'll do a war, then a picnic. There's not going to be a picnic. It's not going to be a picnic for the American people. They're paying for it. Because we had burned so many bridges. And <laughs> actually tried to blow up one in Crimea. That didn't go well either with our allies and our friends. So reinstating uh, a foreign policy that plays to the best of American values. What are the American values that are benefiting here? Profiteering, sustaining an unwinnable war, lying to people, using taxpayer dollars to sustain a war that can't be won in, instead of supporting the people of Hawaii in their evident need and suffering. Are these the American values that you voted for? That puts our 
interests and security front and center, but does it in a way that actually brings people to us, not pushes them away, uh, would have been thought to be uh, extremely difficult. And indeed, it was, but it was accomplished. And we have seen the continuation of a lot of the values and priorities that we worked on uh, into uh, uh, the Biden administration. Uh, and in looking across the globe, defending democracy in Ukraine, expanding NATO. Democracy where there are going to be no elections. Just as an aside, too bad, Vladimir. You brought it on yourself. Or we brought it on you by expanding NATO. This could not be a happier occasion. And thank you so much for hosting us. Yeah, it's like we're exchanging a spectacle for reality and any alternative vision is likely to be shut down according to legislation that's being ushered through. Extraordinary that this is what statespersonship looks like now, offering war instead of peace, celebrating alliances that are ultimately dedicated to bringing about death and profit and presenting it as if it's just a congenial celebratory affair. What an extraordinary demonstration of how far from the values of ordinary Americans, the values of elites have become. What are we talking about? We're talking about independent journalism. We're talking about the necessity for dissenting voices. And on that note, we are introducing a significant voice in the independent media world. It's Lee Fang, who you know from Substack. You probably know about his work on the Twitter files. Uh, join us now. We can't carry on on YouTube. We're going to be on Rumble. See you over there. You guys, we have Lee Fang, who for a variety of reasons is much beloved on this platform. If it isn't his natural root lift, it's his investigative journalism that has made him adored across the spectrum. Lee, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Mate, uh, I know that the thing you want to talk about most of all is a Zen pick. We've talked about it before on this channel. We've talked about it with Cali Means. We've talked about it as an emergent new drug that's going to conquer, uh, that's conquering new markets, that's extraordinarily profitable, uh, and that has been presented perhaps in ways that are, if not disingenuous, just dishonest. Can you tell me what the what the story you've just broke on Azempic is, please? Well, look, first, just to introduce it, you know, these are a new class of drugs, these uh, GLP-1 drugs. They kind of imitate uh, a hormone, the GLP hormone that regulates uh, uh, insulin levels in the body. They were first approved uh, for diabetes. And look, uh, there are many benefits uh, for uh, for people struggling with diabetes. And this is one of the number one killers around the world and in America. But the issue here is that drug makers, Novo Nordisk uh, is the first big company to come out with a class of these drugs. Uh, many other big pharma companies are rushing to bring products to market. Is that uh, the, in, in addition to regulating insulin and, and helping diabetics, uh, patients have found that you rapidly lose weight on these drugs. So um, Ozempic, also known as Wegovy, um, there are others that are coming. Uh, they have blown up as a weight loss silver bullet. And the companies that produce uh, these drugs see a gigantic financial 
windfall, um, not as a, the drugs, not as a diabetes drug, but that's, that's part of uh, the story. But the big part of the market is treating obesity. Uh, 44% of adult Americans are overweight, uh, something like 100 million people. Uh, it costs uh, over $10,000 a year to take these injections, uh, these drugs. Uh, so this to seize this financial opportunity to get Americans uh, using Ozempic or Wegovi, what have you, uh, there's a coordinated campaign by Novo Nordisk and other big pharma companies to reshape uh, the public discourse, to plant uh, dozens, if not hundreds of media stories talking about, hey, if you're struggling with obesity, if you're struggling with body image issues, if you're struggling with uh, ob obesity stigma issues, if you're look concerned about the racial disparities in uh, obesity, you should consider uh, this class of drugs. Don't feel concerned about asking your doctor for these drugs. And in, in a lot of areas of medicine and, and in public policy, there are disclosure requirements. If you publish a scientific paper, if you air a television advertisement, uh, at least in the United States, you have to disclose that, hey, this was paid for by a drug company. But those type of disclosure requirements uh, don't exist for the media. So for the biggest newspapers in the country, for the Washington Post, USA Today, for the biggest broadcasters, for CBS News, NBC, and even for small uh, local television outlets and, and local news outlets, we're seeing a flurry of news articles uh, quoting physicians, experts, patient advocacy groups, celebrities, community activists, civil rights groups. I mean, the list goes on of groups that are encouraging the use of these drugs for weight loss, where I think there are still questions to be answered if this is an effective treatment for most people struggling with obesity. Um, but there is this kind of coordinated campaign to get Americans on these drugs for obesity. Uh, and there's a lack of disclosure that these experts being quoted that are going to the media, shaping the public discourse around how we see these drugs, how Americans view um, whether they should take them, whether our insurance company should provide them, should the government change the law and should the government be paying for these drugs? That's the big push right now. Um, there's no disclosure that these experts are being paid for by Novo Nordisk and other drug companies that stand to gain uh, from the explosion of this market. It's extraordinary how reality could be so carefully cultivated that a story like this, a narrative like this, can be constructed around a, a product which is plainly being engineered, I don't mean pharmacologically engineered, but I mean as a phenomenon and as a commodity in order to be highly marketable. My understanding is, is that Azempic and the class of drugs are require lifelong usage once you embark on them. And it seems to me that you're saying that they are known to be effective for diabetes, that there is evidence that they are effective for weight loss, but perhaps not sufficient evidence when it comes to potential side effects of long-term usage. And in any event, the way that we are being sold the idea of this class of drugs is not objective. There are undeclared interests and undeclared financial ties. Can you give us some examples of those financial ties, Lee? Yeah, uh, just to give you a few examples, I mean, there are many doctors that are being quoted almost on a daily basis. Uh, there's a doctor in Texas named Deborah Horn, who's appeared in many different media outlets. You can Google her name, look at the Google News or you know where, what have you. Um, I, I highlight uh, her quotes in a recent 
uh, CBS news article. Uh, she discusses the need uh, for insurance companies to start paying for Ozempic and Wagovi. Um, she's pretty much the only physician quoted by this news article. Uh, what's not disclosed that she, is that she has received uh, about a quarter million dollars from Novo Nordisk on um, the last few years. That's an, those are and those are old numbers. We don't have the latest disclosures. It's probably much more. Um, that same news article talks to uh, a think tank, uh, the Urban Institute, and that basically that the study looks and says, "Hey, we don't have enough states paying for Ozempic and Wegovy. Only a few states do." Well, who who financed the study? Again, Novo Nordisk. I mean, this is almost like a an entire uh, marketing release from Novo Nordisk, but with no. And it, but it's framed as news. It, it's only positive about the company, but there are no fingerprints showing that everyone quoted in the story was funded by the company. It's extraordinary to note how frequently we find these days that news media is nothing of the sort. It's merely the broadcast arm of corporate interests that are in many cases evident, traceable and observable if you're willing to undertake the research or watch for the relevant and ongoing patterns. It's not surprising to learn that such a potentially profitable drug is marketed not in a direct, plain way in terms of its utility and efficacy, but it, through various rather more insidious means, i.e. it's presented academically and scientifically as beneficial, apparently independent think tanks are offered as giving objective information, which is, of course, paid for information. And beyond even this uh, already egregious example of what appears to be a form of legal corruption is the idea that science, or science as it's commonly understood, has itself become warped. What I mean by that, Lee, is we're looking at information that is apparently objective, but in actually the momentum behind this product is not a desire to treat people's diabetes or obesity. It's a profit-driven motive that just has to pull into its vacuum any necessary information in order to meet those ends. It's unlikely that people are going to do studies on uh, long-term impact of Zempic or what happens if you suddenly stop taking it and don't want to take it anymore because the findings of such clinical trials would potentially be unprofitable. So even, and I feel like we saw the, some of this in the pandemic period, information that's presented as science is actually a very carefully curated and managed reality that often is sort of the opposite of science, i.e. not objective. No, that's right. I mean, even the internal studies from Novo Nordis, these are the company's own studies, show that almost immediately if patients get off these drugs, the GLP drugs, and they're using them for weight loss, they regain the weight within weeks. Um, it's, it's almost instantaneous. So just to put this in perspective, uh, Pfizer had one of the most profitable pharmaceutical products of all time uh, in 2021, uh, you know, releasing their vaccine. That was something like $80 billion in one year revenue just from this one product. Well, recently, bankers, uh, JP Morgan and other investment banks put out some estimates for the GLP market uh, for Wegovy, uh, Zempic. And then, you know, there's many other competitors coming out very soon uh, within the decade. On an annual basis, these drugs will bring in about 70 to $80 billion annually. And it's very different from a vaccine. A vaccine is 
somewhat of a one-time event. I mean, with the, you know, obviously there are boosters and, you know, other dynamics around this, but generally speaking, vaccines are a one-time event. These drugs, as you mentioned, um, you're not supposed to get off of. And while there are great benefits for diabetics to avoid dialysis and to extend their life by taking these drugs for weight loss, you know, I, I think the benefits are not clear. I mean, we're seeing very serious side effects. I mean, very common side effects are the nausea and, and vomiting and, and, and other issues, but very serious, uh, less common side effects are stomach paralysis, people who can't digest their food. The food just kind of sits there in their digestive system, not moving. There's thyroid cancer. There are other um, effects that, you know, you, you look at this drug and you say, this is not uh, a panacea for weight loss. I mean, there are so many other interventions that are that many patients need. But for many policymakers, uh, for uh, the drug companies and, and others, this looks like an easy, quick fix to just throw money at a problem to make enormous amounts of profit for a small number of companies and not look at the, the bigger picture. You know, the, the issues around our food system, the, the issues around our agricultural policy, the, the issues around our, our, the American culture and, and way of dining and eating. You know, I'm, these are much more complicated, less lucrative issues to solve. Right. <laughs> um so uh, it, it kind of it does get back to profit. Novo Nordisk is one of the most valuable drug companies, one of the most valuable companies in the world right now, just on the back of this one product, which is still taking off. I mean, if they win this campaign right now, they're lobbying furiously uh, to allow Medicare, the main kind of health insurance public program for uh, older people in, in the United States to cover this drug. That's over $10,000 a, a year. That's um, a lot of potential profit. It's probably downstream. It gets the private insurers to cover this as well. Um, this is going to mint many new billionaires if it's successful, this lobbying campaign. And that's the main thing. It makes you identify how we have to recognize and analyze unconscious assumptions that ought in any sensible world remain relatively unconscious. What I mean, Lee, is the idea that the motivation behind the pharmacological industry is to find solutions to health problems. That would seem like a sort of a sensible assumption. But under even a little analysis, it becomes clear that the function of the pharmacological industry is to make a profit. And that's a sort of a very different ideological goal. And almost it sometimes seems to me that if there are any benefits to their products, it's almost an inadvertent consequence rather than the raison d'etre of the industry. When a, a commodity like a Zempic or its other brand names available becomes, uh, uh, becomes hot like this, it's plain that the mentality and the mindset, the relationships between the state, the insurance companies and the pharmacological companies is not, oh, wow, how are we going to help as many people as possible? We simply have to resolve this because if that were the mindset, as you have just said, there would be a soup to nuts, forgive the analogy, analysis of the food industry, the, the way that big food lobbies, the type of foods that we eat, the unconsciousness around diet. It's far more convenient to have one arm of the corporate state machine fill you food of processed carcinogenic diabetes inducing food then another arm strap you up and lash on a machine that injects you with drugs to reduce the fat for as long as you take it forever the 
What's behind even an, an enormous story like this is almost more alarmingly the idea that the system itself is guided by malign principles. And I, I'm fearful of using language like profiteering or sort of, uh, some kind of uh, zombie capitalism or some, a monstrous undemocratic, anti-American, anti-human ideology. But it seems like the only way to describe it, this kind of cart before the horse mentality, and it exists throughout cultural, social, and even geopolitical life, because I know elsewhere we have companies such as, and specifically Lockheed Martin, able to offer a positive outlook for the future of their investors and shareholders based on an assumption that the Ukraine-Russia war will continue. Now, of course, this is another situation that's presented as humanitarian intervention because there's a criminal war and it has to be resolved. The narratives around it are highly censored and edited. The conversation around it is shut down. Can you tell us a little more about uh, Lockheed Martin's relationship to the potential for an ongoing Ukraine-Russia conflict? Well, but, you know, I, I look, took a look at some of the recent investor reports, and there was a conference uh, hosted by the investment bank Morgan Stanley here in California earlier this month. Uh, it was a kind of a opportunity for the big companies to make presentations. Um, I reviewed those presentations. They were fascinating because many of the big defense contractors discussed uh, the war in Ukraine. Um, and of course, I mean, the through thread here between big pharma and big defense is that these are companies that legally have a fiduciary duty to their investors. They don't serve necessarily national security or human health or the public interest. They serve their investors. And so for that very simple reason, at this investor conference in Southern California uh, recently, Lockheed Martin and others discussed the business opportunities presented by the conflict in Ukraine. Now, uh, you know, the, the U.S. is escalating this war incrementally along with its NATO allies in terms of the types of weaponry uh, they're providing. Just last week, uh, the Biden administration uh, announced that they're releasing uh, long-range missiles produced by Lockheed Martin that are going to carry cluster munitions um, and, and providing those to Ukrainian forces. You know, we've had the steady increase in the types of weaponry that we've provided to Ukraine now that we're uh, training F-16 pilots uh, in Arizona and preparing uh, for NATO allies to provide those those planes to Ukraine, a, a very major escalation. But just looking at the munitions, I mean, this 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 investor conference, I clipped part of uh, the video and posted it on my Substack. But you have uh, the executives at Lockheed Martin basically saying, "Look, we've given so many munitions, uh, air defense missiles, long range uh, missiles, uh, various forms of, of rockets, anti tank rockets like the Javelin. Um, we've given so many that we now have these incredible." Uh, resupply contracts with the U.S. military. We've got to restock the U.S. stockpile and provide new contract deliveries to Ukraine. And given the escalation, we're seeing more business opportunities. I'm paraphrasing here, but uh, they use incredibly explicit language. And I think that's, this is important to see that there are many different interest groups shaping public policy and the dynamics around this very complicated conflict in, between Ukraine and Russia. And, they, and these uh, businesses have a lot of say in Washington. These, these companies underwrite the politicians. They underwrite the biggest think tanks. They, they also have a lot of influence in the media. So they're shaping the contours of how we discuss uh, this debate in a very subtle way. Um, you know, you, it's not like 
uh, the Ozempic issue where you have all these talking head doctors and, you know, obesity, you know, activists appearing in the media without disclosing their ties. It's not quite as overt as that. But if you look at the largest think tanks, the largest kind of institutes that advise on national security priorities that help write uh, the legislation and the appropriation bills in Congress, these are all folks who are funded uh, by the defense lobby, particularly companies that stand to benefit like Lockheed Martin. As well as the policy being directed, as you say, by lobbying, donations, shared financial interest, there's also the perception of this war. I was struck, Lee, when you said that in very plain language, you can hear in the discourse between Lockheed Martin and their investors, the projections, requirements and agenda of that particular financial entity or corporation that, as you says, has only a fiduciary duty to its investors rather than any moral obligations. The moral obligations are supposed to belong to the government and the media. That And those moral obligations are fulfilled not through integrity, authenticity and uh, rigorous self-examination and transparency, but instead by a kind of propagandist endeavour that prevents you from ever being able to regard the war as anything other than unprovoked an unjust attack or and of course you know every time i mention this but so as not to be guilty of lacking nuance myself i always mention that it appears to be a criminal invasion and i'm not like a putin apologist i'm simply a person trying as best as i can to understand the dynamics behind this war and why it is being sold to us in such a reductive simplistic and unhelpful manner and why people are not talking about peace. The media, the dominant mainstream media, the legacy media, call it what you will, appear to be uh, heavily committed to presenting this conflict in a very simplistic way. Photo opportunities that lead to bizarre incidents like a Nazi being applauded in Canadian Parliament. The simplification of the uh, history between Ukraine and Russia and some of the factions fighting with the in the Ukrainian army. How do you suppose it is that, you know, when you say it's not so simple or, 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 or blunt as the Ozempic example, talking heads with clear financial ties, giving you a narrative that's plainly beneficial to their own financial interests. How is it that it's so difficult to present alternative stories or even to aggressively inquire as to the the origins of this conflict and the potential malign reasons for its perpetuation. I mean, that's an extended conversation. But if you look, just kind of broadly speaking, you know, almost for any complicated policy issue, you need kind of an interest group. You need, for lack of a better term, a lobby. And I, I use that term broadly, whether that's organized citizens or organized business groups or what have you, uh, to represent a perspective and to go argue for that perspective uh, to the media and to policymakers and make a case. Uh, in the case of Ukraine, Russia, uh, this there's no real interest group that's lobbying for peace, right? There's there's no one that gains financially really from, from peace. I mean, I, I, perhaps, uh, you know, there, there are, you know, interrupted grain uh, and uh, trade ties with the war in Ukraine, but generally speaking, there's a lot. There's a lot more people making money than there are losing money, hmm. uh, especially in the United States. Um, these folks are are not organized, and then you'd not only have uh, the defense contractor lobby that's very influential, but you have kind of the permanent Washington blob of you know uh, the 
the military, the intelligence agencies uh, that, that go on the Sunday talk shows and, and are quoted headline news uh, talking about the you know kind of glorious victories that Ukraine will have in their counteroffensive every day in the media. Um, this is kind of a more of a imperial mindset in, in the American media that that just sees a, a very black and white, almost Cold War era uh, conflict with Russia and, and an opportunity to bleed. I mean, this is in their terms and, and what people like Senator Lindsey Graham uh, and others have said, you know, an opportunity to bleed Russia, to, to, to you know, kill Russian, Russian soldiers, to uh, diminish and destroy uh, Russian military assets. And uh, they have a, the biggest platform, you know, and just looking at this as an interest group story, uh, the blob in D.C., the defense uh, lobby uh, has the biggest platform. Uh, the peace lobby, for lack of a better term, does not. And so you really have one side that's taking up all the oxygen. Mm. And we don't have a sober minded discussion of what are the ramifications of escalation? What's the end game? What does peace look like? What are the incentives for negotiation? Who's pushing these leaders to do that? Because, you know, at, at the end of the day, Ukraine is heavily reliant on the United States. You know, I, I would love a, a situation where uh, we have Ukrainians have full agency and could negotiate on, on their own. But for many reasons, uh, the United States is in the driving seat right now. You know, the, the, the Ukraine is militarily and financially dependent on the United States. The United States has a role in, in setting any kind of peace negotiations. Um, but we're we're not seeing that. We're not seeing anyone really push for that. And we've seen the few voices on Capitol Hill. There was that small effort last year by uh, a number of progressive House Democrats to just write a letter saying, pending to the Biden administration saying, hey, could we please have peace <laughs> negotiations as an option? Not saying we need this or we're going to cut off aid or anything kind of you know dramatic. And just by drafting that letter, someone leaked the draft. Um, you know, people went apoplectic. And the, the lawmakers who are even drafting that letter apologize for even considering that as an option. So, you know, we just have a very one sided debate right now in Washington. Yeah, it's terrifying and becoming more terrifying. I'd forgotten about that letter. And I recently I saw a bit of propaganda, uh, Republicans for war in Ukraine, where they sort of tried to eliminate. Yeah, yeah, that. Yeah, like they, even the possibility that it could be discussed or a, that there could be an opposing argument anywhere in Congress or the Senate was sort of closed down. We should get on board with this war. Also watching uh, Hillary Clinton with Jen Psaki able to sort of blithely reiterate points about Putin's election interference, um, Putin as a authoritarian dictator, their imperialist goals. And you could sort of just watch live facts being denied, lies being told, simplification being offered as news. And they just sort of nodded together as if what was being reached was a true consensus. We're sort of living, it seems to me, perhaps at a pivotal moment uh, because of some of the laws that are being passed, like the online safety bill in the UK, but I know there are sort of comparable laws throughout the world that are going to grant governments the power to essentially shut down dissent, as always, under the auspices of safety and the kind of reasonable censure that most people would anticipate around hatred and pornography involving minors. But 
actually, it seems that with the vast power of Google now, we spoke to someone very interesting the other day, Dr. Robert Epstein, who told us about the, the ability of Google to manipulate information and sway elections. And his studies were pretty, I would say, persuasive. And he's certainly someone who I'll be talking to more. I, I wonder what you feel with uh, perhaps, I guess, one of the emblematic stories that demonstrates this ability of the media to manage, control and manipulate information is that remains the Hunter Biden laptop story, the way that his role at Burisma has been reported on. Can you tell us a little more about that, Lee, and, and what it says about media reporting in particular? Well, you know, the, the story that you know I wrote recently, uh, it's it's complicated because there are a couple dynamics here. One is just the traditional way that the elites, powerful people in the media and in politics and business spin the press every day. I mean, there's just a cottage industry of, you know, crisis PR firms and, you know, fancy consultants that help spin lies and, and make sure that reporters never kind of get the truth when they're, when they're asking tough questions. Uh, and then there's this out kind of algorithmic <laughs> deep state, I suppose, a censorship that we've seen also in this story where because of partisanship, because of power, you know, um, there's been efforts to push the story out of public view and kind of falsely claim that it's a, an example of Russian disinformation. I, I know this is something that you've covered a lot, especially the Hunter Biden uh, New York Post story in October 2020. But, you know, what, what's interesting to me for, for the Hunter Biden laptop, you know, I took a look at the emails recently and I've been writing some stories around it. Um, I think this is true for both Republican and Democrat and, and other elites, but we just have this special portal, this window to see the kind of sausage making and, and, and the inside. So I've been doing a couple of these stories, looking at the Biden laptop emails and looking at how uh, Hunter Biden for 10 years managed his public image in ways that I think all the elites do. We just have a special window into Hunter Biden. So in fairness to him, I, th I, th I think this is true for many elites. Um, but, you know, he was hiring you know, special consultants to airbrush his Wikipedia, to airbrush the the Wikipedias of his uh, foreign business partners in Ukraine. And, you know, these are very expensive, you know, $4,000, some $5,000 a month firms that, you know, they use fake accounts, you know, a whole network of fake accounts that go in and edit the negative stories out and, and, and add, you know, all of Hunter Biden's charity work and all the, the awards uh, into those, those pieces. Um, and, and, you know, also working with, these consultants, when he's, he was dealing with, with stories, with, with questions from the press, when the New York Times, when Time Magazine, with the, you know, the biggest outlets, Wall Street Journal, were asking questions when he was hired to this Ukrainian company. You know, this Ukrainian company that was under investigation, that was kind of notoriously corrupt, had hired him um, at, at, in 2014 at a time when the U.S. was, was working with Ukraine and, and promising uh, anti-corruption reforms, when Joe Biden was the liaison from the Biden administration to work with Ukraine to institute ethics reform. His son was hired by one of the most notorious oligarchs. I mean, this was a kind of obvious story. I even wrote about it at the time. You know, I was I was writing it at smaller outlets. You know, um, uh, I had my own personal blog writing about Hunter Biden. And it, was, it was refreshing to see my own stories being circulated in, in his emails back in 2014, um, because I was looking at, at these conflicts of interest. A lot of people were asking these questions and even back then, you can see the emails where Hunter Biden was spinning these reporters saying, you know, this is a uh, and he was using his spokesperson. You know, he was saying, um, you know, these uh, this board spot, you know, the compensation level 
it's completely normal. It's what every uh, company kind of provides uh, a typical board member. That wasn't true. You know, he was being paid about a million dollars a year for perspective. You know, Fortune 500 companies, some of the biggest companies in the world, only pay about 100000 per year. You know, he was receiving 10x the normal compensation rate. Um, he claimed, oh, you know, I'm, I'm working on geothermal issues and um, corporate transparency and good governance. You know, the emails show that plainly not true, that, you know, he was helping uh, get the kind of Ukrainian oligarchs that he was employed by a special visa. They'd been banned from the U.S. because of their corruption issues, um, helping them kind of dislodge a prosecution in Ukraine and uh, kind of work on, on, on various kind of uh, lobby efforts to influence US, the U.S. government. And that, and that brings me to the other thing. You know, a lot of reporters very reasonably asked, are you lobbying? Are you influencing the State Department? Are you influencing your dad? Are you meeting with, uh, you're, you're setting up meetings? Are you hiring lobbyists? And of course, the answer was no. And that, that answer was reprinted in all the biggest uh, media outlets in the U.S. But the emails show that, again, this was plainly not true. Uh, they were setting up meetings with uh, with John Kerry, who at the time was heading the State Department. There, there is, or John Kerry's staff, I should say, uh, with his top deputies. Um, you know, it, it's kind of ironic when they're, if you look at some of these email threads with Hunter Biden, um, you know, they're, they're talking about how to respond to the New York Times. And the New York Times said, you know, are, are you working with any lobbyists? And the person who helped coordinate uh, uh, the response to the New York Times was one of the lobbyists they had just hired the previous month. <laughs> and they said, of course, no, we're not. So, you know, I, again, like, I don't want to unfairly beat up on Hunter Biden because I think this dynamic exists for the elites across the board, Democrats and Republicans. We have, but we have this this window into his emails, and it just really shows the spin cycle, how reporters are spun every day, how the elites shape both social media and mainstream media, and we it's very difficult to get the truth. Do you think that this is an issue that's sufficient to destabilize Biden's presidency? And I ask that really only to demonstrate that we appear to be living in a deeply fragmented world. It's been commonly said really since the advent of immersive social media that we live in silos and that there are numerous cultural fissures but now it appears that I, I can't envisage a 2024 election where whoever is victorious is hailed by both sides as the noble and righteous winner I can't really see how this kind of sentiment of deep hatred now towards legacy media towards the government this total lack of trust in almost every institution that people fund through their tax dollars or pounds or whatever the relevant currency is i can't see now how how this can be sustained other than unless there is going to be an attempt to centralize and control information to such a degree that it that to be a dissident becomes impossible I wonder what you have, what you feel about this fragmenting space. I wonder what you feel about your own role as a journalist. That, uh, based on what I know of your work and you as a man, uh, are committed to telling the truth when the telling the truth is a difficult thing, and allowing people the dignity and honour of determining for themselves what to do based on the facts that are available. How do you feel that this space is going to evolve? How difficult do you feel it's going to be to be an independent media voice? in this evolving space. Do you have any sense that we're approaching anything like an end game based even just on the, you know, the various rafts of legislation that are being globally passed? I mean, I feel conflicted, to be honest with you, because I see 
multiple perspectives and I have my own personal role as someone who works in independent media, but I'm also, you know, I'm a, I'm a citizen. I'm an American. I, I, I want good things for uh, the public interest. I want good laws passed and shared prosperity, whatever, you know, I, I, I but because we can't just have a completely fractured dissident media. We, we, we do need strong institutions. We need, high quality newspapers that shine a light on corruption and tell you what's going on on a day-to-day basis. You know, um, in addition to that, we do need an outside voice um, questioning the media and, and, and questioning power. Um, how do we maintain a balance is, is very difficult because if you look at the major uh, mainstream institutions of the media, they've lost credibility. You know, they, um, they've shifted to a subscriber model, desperate, for revenue because of they lo- they've lost so much revenue to Facebook and Google that they're captured by their subscribers. They don't have enough reporters and editors. So when you're a powerful, powerful public relations firm or a corporation or a powerful government official, it's very easy to go to a newspaper that doesn't have a lot of fact checkers and a lot of, you know, adversarial reporters and to spoon feed the media to give them a prepackaged news story. And, you know, they're, they're under budget and overworked and they say, okay, this looks like a scoop and they basically republish it. Um, and they're under increasing pressure from government agencies to censor, to say that, hey, look, if you publish you know, the wrong narrative or the wrong person, um, that's a form of disinformation or hate speech or what have you. And you know, that's gonna lead to you, know, it, you being shadow banned on the social networks, on Google on, and the internet platforms and Facebook, that means less advertising dollars and, and they're already being pinched. Um, you know, that, that's not a great dynamic either, because how are you going to have a, a, an open society and public debate? Now, for independent media, um, you know, I'm part of that. You know, I, I try to hold myself to a, a high standard, um, high journalistic standards. You know, I've, if I make a mistake, I, I, mean, I rush to issue a, a correction. I, I, I call people. I try to provide context. I try to be fair to all sides in a debate. But for a lot of independent media, some are less scrupulous. You know, you, you have a lot of bad faith independent media out there. Uh, with lower standards. Um, while you, we need an independent press, uh, a dissident media to constantly criticize and shape institutions and, and to provide more relevant news to our viewers and to our readers, um, that's not a sustainable business model e- either. You know, I, 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 I wish I, I had the resources to provide all my news articles for free. You know, I, I have a, a paywall on most of my <laughs> Uh, uh, my content um, because I need to make a living and pay rent. But, you know, it's, it's again, not a sustainable business model for just people like me or you uh, to be an, an independent press. We need kind of a broad public interest that informs everyone. And how to shape that isn't clear, especially in the age of the internet. No, man. You made me feel like it's a very complex issue indeed, but also that your personal integrity and the possibility that this the support of integrity like you demonstrate could create new pathways could create accountability and could amplify the voices that i believe desperately need amplifying lee thank you so much for joining us today it's uh, always a great uh, pleasure to speak to you and to see you thanks thanks once again thanks so much for having me good seeing you russell good to see you mate you can read Lee's investigative work on his Substack by going to leefang.com and I suggest you do that. I'm serious when I say he's a journalist with genuine integrity. Just listen to the way he speaks. Listen to what he cares about. Guess who's joining us on the show tomorrow? 
Stella Assange. Stella Assange is a lawyer. Of course, she's married to Julian Assange and she's an activist whose very life is consumed by, well, actually she's a mother, so her whole life can't be consumed by it, but primarily she's trying to campaign for Julian Assange's freedom for publishing information was, that was unfavourable to the state and you all know the condition that Julian is in now. From our conversation with Glenn Greenwald, it seems that there's been some evolution, blessedly, in that story and that the Australian government, mostly because of activism among their citizenry, are demanding some justice for Julian Assange. So we'll be talking about that in particular with Stella. Now, if you want to support us and you know now how important it is, please become an Awakened Wonder if it's within your means. If it's not, please stay with us and enjoy this content for free. It's much more important that we have you than we have your resources. But as this situation evolves and develops, surely we shall need both ultimately because we are committed to building something here. We are committed to going beyond independent media and into an independent movement for true freedom for truth, integrity, and freedom. If you become a member, you get guided meditations, reading, Q&As. I'm sure the situation will evolve, and we will certainly do our very best to provide you with as much as we can. And I'd like to welcome our new members, Uncle Tony, Bad Monkey 61, La La Ketchup, Humpty Dumpty, and Jedi Fish, all now reveling in the glory of the Awakened Wonder movement. Please join us tomorrow, not for more of the same. That'll be no good, not after a day like today, but for more of the different. Until then, if you can, stay free. Many switching, switch on, switch off. Many switching, switch on, switch off.